Open your Bible to the last verse of the book of Judges. It might be easier to go to the first chapter of Ruth and go back a page. Judges chapter 21. Familiar phrase with which most believers who've been around the church for very long know, but we're going to look at what it means this morning. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Speaking of the time, the 300 years that encompassed the rule of the judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How many times have you seen a movie or noticed a scene where men with parched faces look out across a desert sand and crawl toward what they believe to be a pool of water, wanting to quench their dying thirst, but as they near this water, the water does what? It disappears. The vision is merely a... Mirage, good class. I mean, these characters vary. They can be cowboys in the Death Valley or the U.S. Southwest of the U.S. United States Southwestern Desert or French Legionnaires in North African Sahara Desert. But the symbolism is always the same. Men dying of thirst, reaching for something that wasn't there, but something they very much thought they had seen. The American Meteorological Society describes a mirage like this, quote, it's a refraction phenomenon wherein an image of some distant object is made to appear displaced from its true position because of a large vertical density variation near the surface. Tracking? The image may appear distorted, inverted, or even wavering. All they're saying is you think you see something that's there and it ain't there. The effects of these distortions, displacements, create an optical illusion that we call a mirage. And although the mind possibly interprets the mirage image as it reflects off of their eyes, this, it's not an imagination. It might surprise you that mirages are not figments of your imagination that are real. Mirages can be photographed. Because of the strong illusional nature of mirages, they gain, though, an air of magic about them. And they dwell in the stories of gods and demons and fairies and magicians. There are different kinds of mirages. Some create the illusion of water. Some create the illusion of a city. Or some turn a horizon upside down. But in all of these mirages, the common factor is the mind believes something is there that actually doesn't exist. Now, I'll tell you that little scientific footnote to remind you that there's a mirage in every man and woman's heart. It's a mirage that's so easy to believe that few take the time to check its authenticity I want us to move closer to this mirage and hopefully watch it dissipate and disappear and see it as a lie. This mirage is called moral intuition. 
In other words, our hearts naturally can discern, decipher, and see what's right and what's wrong, what's real about God and what's false. I think that's what Judges chapter 21 verse 25 is is describing, doing what is right in our own eyes, seeing our own morality as, as clearly as a mirage. We all have a sense of moral intuition. In other words, we think we can sense what is right and wrong, good and best, sinful and righteous. And over the course of 300 years, think of this, 100 years or so longer than our, our country has been around. 300 years. What happened when a nation of people depended on their own moral intuition for direction is recorded in what we have as the book of Judges. Now, for our time this morning, what I want to do is not overview all of Judges, but give you some highlights because we have to have those highlights. The goal is to look over the next few weeks at the book of Ruth. Now that you're there in the, uh, in the end of um, Judges, look across the page or turn the page. The very first verse of Ruth says this. Now it happened, it came about in the days when the judges governed. Before we look at the book of Ruth, we have to know what that means. Judges is the black felt on which the diamond of Ruth is laid so that you can see its brilliance and the character of this woman and the preservation of God's providential line of the Messiah that he was going to protect and even input into a Moabite, Moabite blood into the line of our Savior. Scriptures are a window through which we can see God and mirror in which we can see our hearts. And few places show us the darkness of the human heart like the book of Judges. Now, i got to confess, I took a couple hours and I read it in one sitting, cover to cover. And it's dark. When you finish, you just want to say, I, 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 need, I need Ruth. I need something. Because the, uh, most stories climax and there's a resolution of good and, and the good guy wins. That's not what happens in Judges. It spirals down and out of control, worse and worse and worse. There's a lot of talk in, the, um, in theological circles about Christ in the Old Testament. And I think there are places where Jesus is so obvious that to miss him would be to misinterpret a passage. But there are some places like the book of Judges where I think seeing the absence of a Savior makes him all the more precious. This is a mirror of our heart. And as we look at these, this book, I don't want you to throw rocks at these folks. I want you to see yourself with me alongside them. We're going to do a jet tour. Actually, it's not a jet tour. It's like a satellite view. We're going to just look at some spots in this book. And let me just tell you from the beginning, Judges is not G-rated. <laughs> it is a t- tough, tough book. And you're going to find failure after failure after failure. It reads like a bad day in the L.A. Times or the New York Times. It's, it's a book in which you find murder, conspiracy, rape, idolatry, perversion, homosexuality, betrayal, deceit, treachery, bloodshed, war, fornication, lying, adultery, divorce, and moral failure. Aren't you encouraged? 
And you don't find this just in the culture. You find these sins in the leaders of Israel. Significant character flaws show up in the men who are supposed to lead the people away from their sin and towards God. And the people followed these leaders into their own sins and perversions of them. And failure abounds over and over and over. And God's patience continues to rescue and to shine. You know, the contents are unexpected and unthinkable. What is the book of Judges? What, what is this book in your Bible that I hope the pages aren't stuck together in? God promised the land of Israel, this real estate, to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 12 and 15. He also promised that from Abraham would come a great nation for the purpose of telling the world about the only true and living God. In a strange irony, God took Abraham's descendants to Egypt to be slaves in order to preserve them. The nation grew into the millions in Egypt. They were protected from war and famine while they were there. Then he delivered them from Egypt And the great Exodus sent them on a course to the promised land. And the generation that left Egypt, you'll remember, sinned against God's goodness, sinned against God's faithfulness, so God made them wander around in the desert for 40 years for the sole purpose of dying and not inheriting the land. Then under the leadership of Joshua, the Israelites crossed the Jordan cross that river from the east, begin to take the land that God promised. That's the book of Joshua. But there was a mandate from God. The mandate is a severe one. God said, wherever you go and settle, you are to destroy the Canaanites. You're to kill them. Their families even their livestock, they are to have no bearing and influence on you. Now, I know that's a sticky issue, but remember a few things. The wages of sin is death. Nothing happened to those Canaanites at the hands of the Israelites that wasn't going to happen to them eventually anyway. God is serious about idolatry. And these people were wicked beyond description with worship of false gods that included Human and even infant sacrifice. The book of Joshua chronicles the first phases of these battles. And for the most part, the Jews under his leadership obeyed and dealt severely with the Canaanites. And were dealt severely when, dealt with severely when they disobeyed. But things begin to change when Joshua dies. That's where the book of Judges begins, with the death of Joshua. Judges 1.1, if you go back to the beginning. It came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, what shall go up first for us against, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Said another way, God, who will obey you for us instead of us? See the bait and switch there? Thus begins a crisis of leadership that would not be solved until the reign of King David. One of the cyclical lessons over and over in the Older Testament is that spiritual leadership involves abandoning moral intuition 
and embracing divine revelation. The decline of the nation of Israel in Judges was not because there was no king. It wasn't for lack of a good judge. There were several. It was because the people failed to apply, I think, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was to understand and own theology and pass that down faithfully to their children and grandchildren. The basic leadership, basic leadership rather, is the essence of, of leadership in the family. It was forsaken in the day of judges. They wanted other people to obey, obey in, uh, instead of them and for them. And so judges begins what is an endless cycle, a repetitive cycle of God's boundless grace and forgiveness after their stupid sin and rebellion. Five-step cycle happens over and over. Israel sins, they are then forced into servitude, the Lord allows their enemies to oppress them, they pray for forgiveness, the Lord raises up a judge or deliverer to rescue them, and then they sin again and the cycle starts over. A lot like you and me. It should sound familiar, it's our biography So what is the Judges about? There's three main sections. Let me just highlight this for you. The author foreshadows the the descent of the book in his introduction, which is chapter 1 1 through chapter 3, verse 6. Then from 3, 7 to 1631, you meet 12 judges. All men but one, a woman named Deborah. Some good, some evil, some men, one woman. And then from 17.1 to 25.25, the full depravity of the nation is evident as every man does what's right in his own eyes. So with that, I want to just step back with a satellite view and get ready for the book of Ruth by observing two realities that will dissolve moral intuition, doing what's right in our own eyes. Two realities that dissolve our moral intuition. These are like two steps toward the mirage of moral intuition that will allow us to see that it is an elusive lie and our intuition should not and cannot be trusted to please the Lord. The first is this. Number one, our sinfulness is worse than we imagine. Now, I'm saying our sinfulness is worse than we imagine because we are no different than these Israelites in the land disobeying God. Our sinfulness is worse than we imagine. God had been dealing with the Jews. He had been with them in a special and a loving and in a hesed, a loving kindness way. By giving them the land, he fulfilled his promise, but the people never obeyed God by driving out the Canaanites. And their failure amounted to a lack of faith and certainly a consequence of disobedience. Look at the summary beginning in chapter 1, verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beit Shen. When you see Beit or Beth, it's the house of, it's better pronounced Beit than Beth. Beit Shen and its villages, nor Ta'anak and its villages, nor the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So 
the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Verse 28, it came about when Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, and so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Are you seeing a pattern? Verse 32, they did not drive them out. Verse 33, did not drive them out, lived among the inhabitants. Pattern of disobedience. The theological interpretation and divine application, God's view of these events is given in the first five verses of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bashim and he said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land you shall tear down their altars but you have not obeyed me in this incredulous question of God what is this you have done therefore I also said I will not drive them out before you there's a consequence to disobedience They will become as thorns in your side and their gods will be a snare. They'll trip you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bashim. That means weeping. Place of weeping in Hebrew. And there they sacrificed to the Lord. In response to the people's repentance, God then sets up leaders or judges. Now, what is a judge? They were governors. They were deliverers. They were conquerors. They were champions. And very few of them, honestly, were of admirable character. The first few might be the best. The book's overall theological problem is pressed and presented In chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after many other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do as their fathers When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies and all the days during the days he was alive or she was alive, the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, listen to the patience of God, the grace and kindness and mercy of God. He was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. There was a progression here. 
They followed other gods to serve them and bowed down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because the nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has listened, not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them. Whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them in the hand of Joshua. Let's back up from that a second. One of the things that I want to encourage you to do as you read your Bible, and especially as you read the Older Testament, is look for the character and the ways of God. We found out here God is a testing God. God also is the author of the law of reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping and cause and effect. But he's also, as we'll see, he's so gracious. Sometimes letting us taste the fruit of our disobedience is what drives us back to him, which did Israel. (laughs) And after they tasted the goodness of God and they had relief from their sufferings and the consequences of their disobedience, they went back into their sin even more so at a deeper level. And I'm sure none of us could ever identify with that, right? You know, we haven't had judges or governors or leaders or champions or conquerors, but... Has God arrested your attention? Shown you a sin, a pattern of sin, a cycle of sin in your life? Through a scripture, through a book, through a sermon, through a conversation, a confrontation, has your soul been speared by conviction only to weep as they wept, repent in the short term as they repented, And then return to the vomit. We all have cycles and patterns of sin. And we've all, those of us who know Christ, have experienced his grace, experienced his forgiveness, tasted his goodness. And after doing that, have put our head back into the dumpster, reeking with putrid trash, looking for a meal. When all else failed, listen, when all else failed, Israel decided to obey God. They decided to return to God. And God used judges to then lead them. Now, he used some interesting characters. We'll do another study sometime of all 12 of these judges. The first three were interesting. Uh, Othniel, Ehud, and number three, of the, the best of the first three was Deborah. She was the most impressive. She was a prophetess and a judge. She she was a wonder woman. She led the men into battle. Called them to man up and fight like men. In chapter four and five, she led. And in chapter five, is her famous victory song. Israel won and she led them in a victory song. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I know what you're asking, and this is not the sermon for it. God used Deborah. She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't an elder. She was a governor and a leader, and she was a woman, and God used her. End of narrative. It's not regulative. It's not 
informative except that God used her and it happened. And we thank God for her leadership. Chapter eight, you move into Gideon's judgeship. We're not gonna look at all the judges. He was characterized by good times, bad times, good leadership, bad leadership. He demonstrated great degrees of faith. But in the end, in 827, he sets up himself. This is the leader. This is Gideon. He sets up an idol to be worshiped. But the best part of his leadership is what he says in chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You're the best. I think they were in essence saying, maybe you should be our king. Rule over us, both you and your son and your son's son. We want you to have a dynastic reign over us. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I love this. I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. But the Lord shall rule over you. All profitable spiritual leadership is deflection to Christ's leadership, to the Lord's leadership, to God's sovereign leadership. Then Gideon's son, Abimelech, remember that name? Tries to establish himself as a king, but he's mortally wounded by a woman who drops a millstone on his head. I don't know why I laugh at that. The guy died. In chapter 9, Then in chapter 11, we meet Jephthah, one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. He did not trust that God will fulfill his promise to give him victory against Ammon. He recognized a foreign deity, by the way, in his speech in, to the king of Edom in 1124. He actually speaks of a foreign deity as if he is a god. And then he makes a horrific, horrifying vow because of which he ends up burning his daughter as a human sacrifice at the end of chapter 11. There are a lot of questions theologically about that and I have them as well. But I think the writer of the book of Judges is not making grandiose theological points there that are not any bigger than the grandiose theological point that it was bad and getting worse. (laughs) Then there's Samson, gifted leader like no other. He makes a Nazarite vow never to cut his hair or drink strong drink. God blesses him with amazing strength and bravery. But he had a strong lust for Philistine women. And one had a string on his heart more than he should have led her. Judges 14 verse one, verses 1 to 3. This is incredible. And this is, a great, this is a great passage to talk about with your kids when they get to dating age, parents. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Flashing red light, danger, danger, listen. So he came back and told dad, told daddy, told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. (laughs) 
if you're looking for dating advice, you might not want to come here. Then his father and mother said to him, hang on, is there no, no, I mean, they, they asked the right question. Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you should go to take a wife from? The uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She looks good. You know the story. He gets her. He kills the lion, find, lion, finds honey in the carcass, invents this riddle, devises this riddle. He's tricked by this new Philistine wife named Delilah into revealing the reason for his strength, which was his vow. She cuts his hair. He's tied to these pillars. And in a last moment, he acts out in faith, pulls them down and takes his own life and those of the Philistine leadership. And can I just be, can we have a moment here of Bible interpretation? And he ends up as an example of faith in Hebrews. We, we read Hebrews 11, we say, ah, oh, Samson, Samson. Then you read Samson and Judges, and you go, wow, how did he end up here? I don't know, except that in that last moment, he exercised extraordinary faith that's commendable. God was testing the stubborn people to see if he himself meant more to the people than the land meant to the people. I think it's similar to testing Abraham to see if Isaac meant more to him than God did. You want to live in the land and have a relationship with me or you just want the land and me to take care of the problems in the land? There's such a lesson there. Can you confess, find a moment of honesty in your heart to see that there have been times when any of us and all of us could look to God as a way to get what we want without looking to God to get him. I've seen those chapters in my life. This testing shows that faith and trust in God must take precedence over the physical and observable blessings he provides so during the judges Israel was acting like living in Canaan the God that the, the land that he had provided was was only a part of their relationship with God they they wanted his luxury without his person his blessings without the blesser it got so bad in chapter 19, it's almost an identical scene as that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the point is, sinfulness is worse than you think. And unchecked, it gets worse and progressive. It's a stain that continues to spread unless God in his grace stops it through our obedience. Our sinfulness, like theirs, is worse than we imagine. And we need to shatter the illusion, the mirage, and see. <laughs> You're worse than you think. We all are. The second reality that will dissolve our moral in intuition is not only looking at our hearts. Our sinfulness is worse than we imagine. But number two, God's faithfulness is better than we deserve. It is completely, overwhelmingly better than we deserve. And it was to these 
folks as well. There's a good summary of what's going on here in the heart and mind of God. Look at chapter 9. This is just one of the cycles in which we get some narrative from God about this. Chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 6. Then the sons of Israel did evil... Well, the word is important. Then the son of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Asheroth and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of Amnon and the gods of Philistines. That's just a terrible list. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he said, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly persecuted or distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. See that? 18 years. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals, the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites and the the who oppressed you and you cried out to me and I... I delivered you from their hands, yet you have forsaken me and served. That Hebrew word for serve is worship. You've worshiped other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Making bargains with God in the middle of distress. Have you ever done that? So they put away the foreign gods among them and served the Lord and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. What a grace. He didn't give them every time fully what they deserved. You know how you know that? Because they were alive. He doesn't give us what we deserve which is a lost Christless eternity in hell. We just see that God is a testing God. He intends that the consequences of our sin would teach us to return to him and stay with him. But they returned temporarily and then gravitated back toward their cycles of sin. And then God forgives them, listen, over and over and over and over and over and over and over seven times again. Now let's step back from that just for ourselves before we get into its relationship to the book of Ruth. There's an old word that the Puritans used. It's talking, uh, uh, it describes something that I'm, I'm sure you'll understand. 
becoming Canaanized. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that becoming Canaanized meant that you become like the people that we were to either evangelize or, in their case, eradicate. We become like the world. That's the bottom line. The influence was more on them than they thought. We could, we could train them and bring them to the God of Israel. Did that happen? Before you say no, wait till we start Ruth next week. What a God. Can I, can I encourage you to do what I did? Just take, take an hour and a half. You can even listen to it. Just listen to the book of Judges or read the book of Judges in one sitting. It gets darker and darker and darker. Worldly values, desires. Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. And that's exactly what they had come to here. Their own intuition was the measure, the determining factor of everything. And I think as you and I begin to ignore God's commands, the lines of morality become, can be easily become blurred, distorted, like a mirage. They're eventually obliterating our understanding of reality. Our sinful, sinfulness is so much worse than we imagine, but God's patience, mercy, and grace is so much better than they deserved and than we deserve. Listen, the people wanted a king, they got a judge, but they needed a savior. Now it came about when the judges were leading, when they were governing, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons, says the opening verse of Ruth. And the intention of the Holy Spirit, I'm convinced, is to read Ruth in the middle of this terrific, horrific time in, in Israel's 300-year history where the judges ruled. People were doing what was right in their own eyes. They thought their own moral intuition was trustworthy. And every time they did, it ended in personal and national disaster. You know when I read Judges, you know what I, I finish that last verse and you know what I say? We need a Savior we need a savior from our moral tuition. We need a savior from our consequences of our sin. We need a savior from our sin itself. The end of Judges screams, turn to the Gospels. It just makes me so glad that we live in, in our day when we have all 66 books of the Bible. Aren't you glad you do? Aren't you glad you have the Gospel? In the middle of this darkest horrific, spiritually malnourished time, God picks a couple and sends them to Moab. That's outside of Israel, across the, 
across the Jordan. And the most amazing story starts to unfold. And I think if we understand it rightly, it is the perfect preparation for the next month when we're celebrating the incarnation. Let me say it this way. The book of Ruth ensures the incarnation's faithfulness to God's covenantal promise and shows us how it's related and even demonstrates, we'll see this later, that the bloodlines of our Lord Jesus Christ had Moabite DNA flowing in his veins. It's incredible, the grace of God, the outreach of God, the heart of God. Let me just encourage you, he continued to rescue when they cried out, even when they abandoned him after he rescued them, when they cried out, we have that kind of God. And he's crying out to you every moment of your life to trust him. And if you don't know him, you know he's crying out today? I sent my son to save you from your sins, to save you for his relationship and to bring him in, bring you into a, a place that relieves you from your troubles, not by making them dissipate, but understand them in the light of God's understanding and providence. So, that's what it means in the days when the judges governed. And next week we'll begin to find out something that happened that was incredibly surprising during this time.